Good morning, everybody. All through middle school and junior high, I played the trumpet in the band. And the trumpet was not my first choice, uh, but we didn't have a lot of money. What we did have was my dad's old trumpet, so I got stuck playing the trumpet. And band really wasn't my first choice either, but I wasn't really great at sports, and so I got stuck in band. But I didn't mind that one too much because of the incentive. You see, where I went to school, if you were in band all five years it was available to you through fourth or four, four years, fourth through eighth grade, then you were able to go to an all-expenses-paid trip to Six Flags St. Louis. And that's all that my fourth grade heart really desired in this world, so I was in. And that meant that I learned this instrument, you know, for four years. I practiced. For four years, I skipped a recess to come into band practice instead. For four years, I came in early, two days a week to school to practice with the rest of the band. That meant that for four years, every summer, I came in for two weeks to have band camp or whatever they called it then. I did this so that I could go on this trip. And then finally, the day came. All the band, we got loaded up on the school bus. We were going to Six Flags. And then something unexpected happened. Then the choir people started to get on the bus too. And choir was only a two-year gig. And I thought, what gives? And then my friend Ben got on the bus. I'm like, Ben, what are you doing here? You joined choir this year to be next to Leslie because you had a crush on her. That's the only reason you did choir. Why are you here? He said, they told me I could go on the trip. Turns out they changed the criteria somewhere in the process. You didn't have to do four years of band. You could have signed up for one measly year of choir, come in for 30 minutes a week. You're good. What kind of bait and switch operation was this school trying to pull? I was a little mad about it at first, but then as I thought about it, I got over it because it ended up being a good thing that they changed the criteria. That meant that more people got to go on the trip. It meant that my friend Ben got to go on the trip, and it really, it was a better time because more people were there. And the truth is, sometimes it's a good thing that the criteria changes. I mean, in our own culture, we've seen this a time or two. It's back in, in the day, decades ago, when, when autism was first kind of beginning to be understood, there's a very narrow criteria for being diagnosed with autism. You had to meet six specific criteria, and because it was early in our understanding, those criteria tended to target kids who were more on the extreme end of the spectrum. That meant that a lot of people were being, uh, you know, weren't being diagnosed, and, and so, you know, that wasn't great, but time went on, our understanding improved, and, and then the, the criteria changed, and there was now 16 different criteria, and you really had to meet eight of the 16 to be placed on the spectrum somewhere, and what that meant was that a lot more people received access to programs and to support and to education, and it really just helped a ton of families out. It was a good thing that the criteria changed. And even as people of faith, we've experienced a change in criteria that has benefited millions and millions and billions of people because it used to be believed back in the day that in order to have peace with God and to have His grace and His favor and His love poured upon you, you had to check off certain boxes. You know, you had to do certain things. You had to avoid the wrong things. It was believed that you had to make the right sacrifices to, to atone for the wrong things that you accidentally did. And you had all this extra stuff that you hopefully had to do to put icing on the cake. There's just so many boxes that you had to check off. And then God changed the criteria. And He said it's no longer about boxes. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through Him that you receive my blessing, that you receive my love, that you receive grace, that you receive peace with me. He changed the criteria, and billions and billions of people, you and I included, have benefited because of that. And we read about that change and its implications in our passage this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Philippians chapter 3 to follow along. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't sweat it. We always put the passages on the screens to the side. Or personally, I would recommend you download the FCC Monmouth app on your mobile device. 
click the Sunday button on the navigation bar, and you'll find sermon notes with all the passages we're going to read this morning pulled up, ready for you to roll with. So Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And as I read through this passage, and I read about this changing criteria that God has made, there's this thought that comes into my mind. We live in the golden age of God's goodness. And there's, there's better stuff yet to come. We sang a little bit about it in the last song, right? Things are going to get awesome when Jesus comes back. But right now, at this point in history, we have never lived in a time where God's goodness was so accessible and so prevalent and so powerfully felt as right now. We live in a blessed time, the golden age of His goodness. And we read about that in our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Just prior to what we're about to read, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this, he planted a bunch of churches. God told him to go preach the gospel across the world. What he's doing is he's talking about his spiritual, his pedigree, excuse me, and he's talking about all the stuff. He was like, I was born into the right family. I was raised the right way. I was taught the right stuff. I did all the things I was supposed to. I avoided all the stuff I was supposed to avoid. I did all that extra stuff that good religious people are supposed to do. If there was a box to be checked off, man, I checked it. And with that being said, this is our passage in verse 7. Look at what he has to say. He says, but whatever were gains to me, that stuff he was talking about, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I don't know if you caught that there, but what he just said was all of this stuff that I used to be really proud of, this religious pedigree that I had, all those boxes that I checked off, that didn't mean anything now. It's worthless. In fact, it's worse than worthless. It's street garbage. It's refuse. It's rubbish. It means so little to me. Why would he say that? Because he used to be very proud of that stuff. I did all the right stuff. My report card was A pluses, checked all the boxes. Why the change of heart? Well, he tells us, I found something better. I found the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has opened the gates up. And I realize that no longer do I have to try to measure up by my own accomplishments. No longer do I have to check off a million plus boxes to find favor and blessing and peace and grace from God. It comes through a different means, a new criteria of simply knowing Christ. And that's a blessed thing. We read about it in verse 10 if we want to keep going there. He mentions it in verse 8, but verse 10 gives us a little more detail. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He just wants to know Christ so fully and so powerfully because of this amazing thing that God has made available to him and you and me and all of us today. God changed the criteria, and that's why I say we live in the golden age of God's goodness. Because do you know how freeing it is? And how liberating it is to know that we don't have to measure up by our own abilities. We don't have to check off a million plus boxes. That weight and that pressure of being enough is lifted. And God says, just know Christ. It's an amazing freedom. Give me an illustration of the difference here. There's a time in my life, it was a really fun time, it was in college. I worked as a recruiter for the school that I went to. And I spent the summer traveling around with my team to different church camps, trying to recruit students and get them to enroll and stuff. 
And then we just kind of hung out with students along the way. And there are two weeks from that summer that I will always remember for very different reasons. The first one was in Arkansas. The guy that ran that week of camp was a guy named Eric. Uh, It was a junior high week of camp, supposed to be a lot of fun, but Eric ruined it because he had so many rules, so many regulations. There's very little leeway, very little slack for these kids as far as being late or horseplay or whatever. And as the team representing the school that showed up, he had a laundry list of things for us to do every day, like 50 different boxes to check off. It was just, it was a lot. It was really stressful. It was a lot of responsibility. And the worst part was, this was a junior high week of camp. This was supposed to be the most fun week. Because junior hires are at this age where, like, they're mature enough to start asking real questions about faith, but they're immature enough that they still think farts are funny, and that's just a lot of fun to be with as a college kid. And he took that from me, and I'll never forgive him for that. The second week of camp that I'll always remember, very different, was actually at our own camp that we're a part of, Lemoyne Christian Camp. Uh, And it was a junior high week of camp, and we showed up, and we asked the guy running that. We said, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to be responsible for? Who do you want us to chaperone? He said, don't worry about any of that. Just be with the kids this week. I thought, well, okay, I can do that. So we played all the time. We were dunking kids and drowning them in in the swimming pool. We were throwing them across the soccer field. We were having a blast. And you know what? That was the most fun, most memorable week of camp, and we actually made a bigger impact in the lives of more students that week than we did trying to check off 50 different boxes. There was so much freedom not having to measure up to this impossible standard. And that's the gift that God has given us in Christ. There is so much freedom. There's so much peace to just be with Him, to just know Christ. That is the new criteria that God looks for. It's a blessing. But at least to another logical question, If this is the new criteria that God is looking at, if this is what faith is all about, knowing Christ, we probably ought to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to know Christ? That seems like a really important thing that we want to get nailed down. And thankfully, he tells us in the passage we just read in verse 10, let's look at it again. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So just reading that little description there, we can tell that this is kind of an involved process. It's not just a simple matter of showing up on Sunday and letting worship music wash over us and saying, "Mm, I know Christ now. Amen. There's a little more to it here. And there's a little more here than just simply knowing about Christ as well. Sometimes we can make that confusing Uh, or we can confuse there. We can think that knowing about Christ is the same thing as knowing Him. And I'll tell you firsthand that, that knowing about Christ and studying about Jesus and reading Scripture and studying Scripture is an amazing thing with amazing benefits. It has shaped me and my walk immensely. But I have a bookshelf in my office, and there's a lot of books on there written by men and women who have forgotten more about Christ in the Bible than I will ever learn and yet do not know Christ in the way that Scripture is talking about here. This is not simply a matter of knowing about somebody. There's, you can tell by this language here. There's, there's a relationship involved. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Participation, the Greek word, if we wanted to look it up, is the same word as fellowship. I want to have communion with him in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. There is a relationship happening here. And if I were to describe, just kind of summarize what it looks like to put this into practice, I'd say that knowing Christ 
means living in solidarity with Christ. Living in solidarity with him. What does it mean to live in solidarity with somebody? Let me give you another example. This is a picture of a woman named Ivanette. Ivanette lives in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She used to be homeless. She used to live under a bridge in that city. But she met somebody that helped put her life together, and she got a job, and she kind of cleaned up. And, and Ivanette is on a fantastic track. She actually works for an organization that helps find solutions to homelessness in Sao Paulo. Now, Ivanette makes enough money that she could rent an apartment, she could save up, buy a house, she could have a traditional residence of her own. But that's not what she chooses to do. Instead, she chooses to live in an abandoned hotel with 120 other homeless people, not because she has to, but because she wants to live in solidarity with them. Her life is constantly rubbing up against these people. They are her neighbors. They are her friends. She has a relationship with them. She doesn't just know about these homeless people. She doesn't just know about their story or about their struggles or about their needs. Like, she knows them. She experiences who they are. She is intimately familiar with their person and with their story. Her life is constantly lived side by side, rubbing up against them. She lives in solidarity with them. And that's what we're called to do with Christ, to live in solidarity with Him, to where our lives are constantly brushing up against His, to where we don't just know about His story, but that we live out His story alongside Him. And that story is one of blessing, it's one of relationship, it's one of grace, it's also one where we shoulder burdens, it's one where we deny ourselves, it's one where we honor God above our own will. It's one at times where we may face rejection. It's one in which we walk side by side with Him, alongside Him, in solidarity with Him. And in living that kind of life, that's how we know Jesus. Not just about Jesus, but we get to know Him and that relationship that we read about here in verse 10 and 11. We want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection, all the good stuff, but also fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Jesus puts it another way in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. You've probably heard this verse before, if I can find it. There we go. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That image of taking up our own cross. You know, the cross is that instrument of, of destruction but to embrace it for ourselves and to carry it behind Christ and to walk with Him just as He embraced His own cross on Gethsemane. That's the picture here of having solidarity with Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. And it's by no means a passive thing that just happens. It's something that requires from us a pursuit and requires from us a commitment. I mean, you just look at what Paul goes on to say in our passage here. If we look back at Philippians 3, verse, look at verse uh, 12. He says, not that I have obtained all of this already or have already arrived at my goal. So just think that, about that for a minute. This is a guy who planted dozens of churches. This is a guy who preached to thousands and thousands of people. Our, you and I, our spiritual heritage today can probably be traced back to this man. That's how far reaching his impact is. And yet he says, I haven't even reached this goal yet. I don't know Christ in this full way that we're called to. Here's what he goes on to say, though. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, 
I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's, there's a race being run in these words that we just read. He is pressing on towards the goal. He is straining towards what is ahead. You almost break a sweat just reading this guy. He's not just sitting on the sidelines waiting for Jesus to come back. He is actively pursuing Christ. He is running after him. He wants to know Christ in this powerful, powerful way. In other words, church, this is not a passive thing that we get to just sit back and let happen. We need to be taking steps after Christ if we want to know Christ. We have a race to run, and we got to lace up our cleats. And that brings us to the point in our time together where I ask the personal, sometimes the uncomfortable, but the necessary question, how's your race going? Are you one who is pressing forward, who is straining towards what is ahead, or are you that person who is still looking to what is behind, tripped up by the past? And we probably better understand what Paul means when he says that in verse 13 there. To strain ahead, to press on towards what is ahead of us, that's us taking steps after Christ. That's spiritual growth. That's development. That's getting to know Christ in this relationship kind of way. We get that. It's that other part, that looking to what is behind that we need to clarify maybe a little bit. Because sometimes we read that and we might think of, you know, he's talking about my mistakes or my past or whatever, but, but that's not what he means here, not in this particular context. It's a little different. You see, he's talking about those accomplishments, those boxes that we used to check off in the past, the things that we have done, things he himself talked about just a few verses earlier. Looking back to what is behind, getting stuck on that stuff, it can sound a lot of different ways. Sometimes it can sound like this, I've done everything there is to do. You know, I've volunteered, I've joined a ministry, I've been in a small group, I've been in a Sunday school class, I've put my faith in Christ, I've studied my Bible, I've been praying, I've done it all. I've done everything there is to do. And really, that's just a laundry list of boxes that we check off. That's what Paul used to say God doesn't look to anymore. But sometimes getting stuck and, and looking at what is behind, sometimes it sounds like this. I've done everything there is to do. I believe in Jesus. I've been baptized. I'm not saved because of my works, and so I'm done. I've done everything I have to do. And that same mentality is actually still focused just on checking off boxes. Granted, fewer boxes. But neither one of those mentalities is really concerned with knowing Christ. Neither of those mentalities is really concerned with having solidarity with Him in our lives and walking with Him in such a way that our life is constantly brushing up against Jesus and Him having rubbed off on us, experiencing His presence, experiencing the power of His resurrection, having fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His selflessness and in His death. And that's the goal, isn't it? You see, it's easy to get caught up on what is behind, on those things we have already done and already accomplished. But as Paul said himself in these words, even I haven't reached the finish line yet, I'm in the middle of a race, and i got to run towards what is ahead. And when we forget that, unfortunate things tend to happen. Take a look at this video clip. You'll see what I mean. Take my word for it, there's a moral to this story. Yeah, it looked like a coronation for Tanche Pepio. University of Oregon runner Tanche Pepio was ahead in the men's steeplechase at the Pepsi Team Invitational and began cheering as he approached the finish line, thinking he was going to win the race. Oh, but not so fast. <laughs> University of Washington's Marin Simon came from behind to win by one-tenth of a second over Tan Che. Simon told the Oregonian, I thought he was so far ahead, then I heard the crowd get crazy. 
And then he started throwing his hands up, and I thought, I don't think he knows I'm coming. And Tan Che told the publication, I just wanted to celebrate winning in front of our crowd. I was excited about it, but the race wasn't over. It wasn't very smart, but it was a learning experience. Yes, it must have been a learning experience and something he'll surely never do again. And you know, no one has to say anything. They don't have to explain it to him. He'll never make that mistake again. Don't forget to tune in to Inside Edition. Inside Edition, by the way, if you want. It's a, it's a beautiful example of what we're talking about this morning. Somebody who forgot they were still in the middle of the race. He was so focused on all those things, all the steps he had already taken. He was sure victory was in hand. He forgot he needed to strain towards what is ahead. And the same thing can very easily happen to us in our walk and in our life with Christ. And so I ask you again this morning, how's your race going? Are you straining towards what is ahead? Some of us are. Some of us are firing on all cylinders. We're in the Word. We're reading Scripture. Our prayer life is solid. We're serving somewhere. We're in a small group. We're doing all these things. And in the process, more importantly, we're experiencing the presence of Christ. We're looking more like Him in our daily walk. We're becoming like Him in His death. We're becoming more selfless. And in so doing, we're expressing love and grace and mercy to people just naturally. Some of us are growing like crazy. And if that's you, just keep doing what you're doing. Don't get caught up on what's behind. Don't forget what the real goal is. It's not checking off boxes. It's knowing Him. But if that's what's taking place in your walk, just keep it up. Some of us more likely, though, probably we've stumbled a little bit. That tends to happen in the summer because the pace of life changes. Our, our, our um, routines change a little bit. And that's why I always like to have a sermon like this, right as fall is about to kick off, because our routines are coming back to normal, and life is getting a little more centered, a little more regulated for the next season. And, and I think this is a fantastic time and opportunity to make sure that Christ is incorporated into that transition, and that as our life gets back on track, we make sure that Christ is part of it, that we're walking with Him that we're growing in Him. And so maybe this is the time of year where it's time to get into the Word. Maybe that's kind of fallen by the wayside in the busyness of summer, but, you know, there are a lot of opportunities. We can download the YouVersion Bible app. It's got a ton of devotionals. I just read one this morning that can help keep us on track. There are Bible reading plans. Maybe it's time to join a small group to study Scripture with other people and to grow in fellowship with the church and grow in our understanding of Christ and our, our being like Christ. Maybe it's time to serve somewhere. I don't know what your step is, but, but I know that there is an opportunity here to take a step. Now, I, I would throw this word of caution out there as well. Some of us, we hear this and we say, all right, I'm going to get in a Bible study. I'm going to join a small group. But some of us, that's not the right step. I'm never going to say studying the Bible is not a great thing. It is. But some of us, the next study, the next book, the next, what, that's not your next step. You've been studying for years. Some of us need to start doing what's in these words that we're reading. Some of us need to start serving and using the gifts that God has given us to build up the body of Christ. That's not like an extra thing on top of it. That's part of faithful discipleship. Some of us need to be faithful financial stewards of the gifts and the graces that God has placed in our lives. Again, that's not some extra thing. That's part of faithful discipleship. Some of us need to forgive, and we need to make amends. That's not an optional thing. That's part of faithful discipleship and knowing Christ. Some of us, we need to just, you know, there's repentance that needs to happen in our lives. We need to turn away from shameful, sinful things. We need to turn towards righteousness and truth. That is part of faithful discipleship. That's part of becoming like Him in His death, 
fellowshipping in his sufferings, that self-denial at times. And as you're hearing this, some of you may be saying, whoa, 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 that's, that's not for me. That sounds really uncomfortable or that sounds really challenging. Hey, that's, that's the number one sign from the Holy Spirit that that's probably your next step. You just got judo chopped by the Holy Spirit. Get used to it. It happens a lot when you get to know Christ, but it's true. He pecks at our hearts and he says, look, I want you to know him. I want you to know the power of his resurrection. I want you to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, which sounds negative, but actually it's a beautiful thing as we die to ourselves because he comes to live in us more fully and to dwell in us. That's God's desire for us, not boxes, but knowing Christ. So church, that's my call to you today. Know Christ. Take a step because we have a race to run. So let's lace up our cleats and let's get going.